Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. There is one area of your personality that is more important than any other, and that is your heart. The state of your heart will determine the course of your life. You are advised and admonished by God to guard your heart more than all else. It's the most important thing that's committed to your keeping. So remember that. Guard your heart with all your strength for all the things there are in life come out of it. I chose that clip because uh, that's interesting to me. It's Proverbs 4. And in your Bible, there's probably a heading over that, uh, that proverb that says something to the effect of uh, um, a wise, wise counsel from a father to a son. It probably says something to that effect. And what I thought was interesting about that is that um, of all that proverb says, all the wise counsel that that father gives to his son, all the wise counsel that God gives to us, he says that above everything else, above all that, make sure you guard your heart. That's the most important thing. And the implication is not that we guard our heart from some external thing, some malicious thing that is out there to uh, attack us and you know, drag us away to eternity in hell or anything like that. The implication is that you care for and you nurture your heart and that you bind your heart together with the Lord uh, so that you are one. And the way that we do that, one of the chief ways we do that is in solitude. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. So when I mention solitude, there might be a couple things that come to mind. And one, one, one idea you might have about solitude might be somewhat on the negative side, though it's, it's not totally negative. It might be uh, that solitude is loneliness. Or all it, solitude is an intense period of isolation and a prolonged sense of isolation, something like that. Maybe a monastic lifestyle, become like one of those old uh, ancients, one of those desert fathers, you know, who goes away into the desert and they uh, pray and they read uh, scripture for years and years and years by the light of a candle or something, you know. Um, and so that, that might be solitude. Uh, you might have a little more uh, modern-day, a little more peaceful uh, connotation when you think of solitude, just calm and quiet, getting away to your favorite place, maybe uh, you know, by the lake or in the mountains or wherever it might be. Uh, maybe it's a place in your house where you can get some solitude. If you're a young mother here today with some kids at home, maybe your idea of solitude, rightfully so, is uh, 60 consecutive seconds of quiet which probably doesn't happen. Now, that would be solitude for sure. But here's the deal, uh, regardless of which end of the spectrum or wherever on that spectrum you stand with regard to solitude, um, if it's just getting away, if it's just experiencing some quiet, if it's just relaxing, if it's unwinding, that'll be good for you, and we should do that. But the deal with that is it will never be enough. You notice that it is never enough. You always need more. You always want more. Uh, you desire more. But biblical solitude is more than just unwinding. I think it does involve unwinding, but it's much, much more than that. It's much deeper than that, and it's uh, much more long-lasting than that, okay? Because biblical solitude is also conducive to something else in our lives, and that's spiritual maturity. Biblical solitude produces spiritual maturity, and so here's the truth, the extent to which you and I practice biblical solitude, the extent to which you and I practice solitude with Christ is the extent to which we'll be spiritually mature. 
The extent to which you and I practice solitude with Christ is the extent to which you and I will be spiritually mature. So when you think of solitude, biblically, you probably think of one of these verses uh, on our next slide uh, about Christ getting away in prayer, getting away with his disciples, getting away by himself, just kind of tucked away. And for sure, I mean, obviously that's biblical and that's part of it, but that's not really what we're going to talk about today. Although I wanted to show that to you because for sure that's, that's biblical, that's the way Christ uh, practice solitude, but I'll show you another way that he practiced solitude, and it had nothing to get away with getting away with other people, okay? Because here's the truth. Biblical solitude is not so much about a place and a time, although places and times are important, are necessary. Biblical solitude is not so much about a place and a time of being as it is about a state of being, what's happening in my heart, in my mind, regardless of the place and the time, regardless of the circumstances. And so biblical solitude is more than just peace and quiet. So we're going to look at a psalm today, that uh, three short verses that reflects, uh, I think, what biblical solitude is, and one big thing that biblical solitude is not. And so if you have a Bible with you, go to Psalm 131. It will be on the screen as well. Psalm 131 says this. This is David writing. And he says, my heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I'm content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. So as I said, we're going to look at this a verse at a time and find out what it says and something that it does not say. Okay, so let's start with verse 1. My heart is not proud. The first uh, point I want to make on that is that um, biblical solitude is not isolation. It's not loneliness, okay? But here's the big thing. It is definitely not solitude. I'm sorry, it's definitely not introspection. Solitude is solitude. Um, it's not introspection. And that's where sometimes there's a little confusion. So biblical solitude is not introspection, okay? Let me show you the cover of one of the best books I've ever read. I've mentioned this a lot up here. Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. This is not a Christian book. Uh, this would be if you went to Amazon or a bookstore or something, and you, you'd probably look under the leadership section or self-help or... Um, you know, something like that. Uh, great book. Stephen R. Covey's passed away, was not a believer, but all the principles in here, there are biblical ap uh, parallels for them, application. Great book, good stuff. Uh, highly recommend it. But there's a lot of stuff like that on leadership, on self-help, on self-improvement, stuff that, material that really um, requires you to take a deep self-assessment. Really look inside and be honest with yourself assess strengths and weaknesses and gifts and abilities and talents and things like that, uh, just purely from a soul perspective, outside of the Lord. And there's some value to that. You can acquire some good skills for leading yourself, for leading a team, for, um, uh, for developing and growing, you know, beyond where you are, and that's good stuff. In fact, one of, the, one of the phrases that you hear a lot from up here, Jason uses a lot, is the tyranny of the urgent. You ever, I mean, you kind of get that phrase because it kind of says what it is. But if you wonder where that comes from, there it is. 
Stephen Covey, well, I could talk about tyranny of the urgent for an hour, so I won't. Uh, but that's where it comes from, okay? So good book. But as I said, if that's all we do, if all we do is acquire skills for life, skills for managing or for handling relationships, skills for navigating uh, conflict, skills for navigating this and that and whatever, you can be very skillful at dealing with life and lack maturity with the Lord. In fact, I know people, you probably do too, who are very skillful at navigating life, navigating relationships, leading organizations, leading com- They're great leaders. They don't know the Lord at all. But man, are they good. I mean, they're, they're good. One of my best friends, Matt, is a big-time leader, and he doesn't know the Lord. Uh, and so that's all possible. You can have great skills but not know the Lord. So uh, solitude is not introspection, okay? And here's the difference. So let me step through real quickly the difference. Introspection, and I'll, I'm not going to go through all this. You can read for yourself. The goal of introspection is thinking things through for yourself with yourself. Thinking things through for yourself with yourself. And the problem with that, and I've said this from, from up front before, is that what makes sense in a monologue gets exposed in a dialogue. But in introspection, you never really have dialogue with anybody because it's you just thinking things through on your own, okay? And it produces the sin of independence that becomes more and more deeply ingrained in your soul. Your soul is your mind and your will, your emotions. What you think with, what you choose with, what you feel with. Whereas the Bible says, Paul says, that salvation is an act of grace. It's not of ourselves. It's nothing we did so that no one can boast. Introspection begins to say, well, no, I I can boast because I've taken a self-assessment. I've looked at my strengths and my weaknesses, and, and I've made some appropriate changes. And so what that naturally can produce is a little bit of boasting, a little bit of pride, a little bit of arrogance, that I manage this by myself. One of the results of uh, introspection is an identity based on, on others, based on myself. And so when I look at who I am, what I'm about, why God created me, my experiences, my past, my present, my future, I look at, at my life, my being, what I see is that I never measure up. Even in the areas where I do a pretty good job and I've, I've really acquired some skills maybe, or I've acquired some experience, or people have told me, man, you're really good at this or that. In my mind, in my heart, I never really measure up because my identity is based on you. And no matter how well I do whatever, you know the dynamic out there, somebody else always does it better. They just do. And so I'm always, uh, you know how a bat flies through your house? We used to live in a neighborhood that had tons of trees, which means we had tons of bats. Sometimes they flew through our house. And the way bats navigate through, you know, just in, in flight is by radar. They, they bounce signals off of so that's how they don't fly into walls and whatever, into ceiling fans. No matter how much you chase them around the house with a tennis racket, they're, they're pretty good, man. They, then their radar will navigate them away from it. Introspection, identity based on self, was kind of like flying like a bat. I'm always bouncing signals off. I don't even think about it. It's unconscious, subconscious. I just bounce signals off of you and you and you and the, those people and Facebook friends and that and whatever the signals are that come back. That's how I, that's how I 
uh, navigate my life. That is maddening. That's maddening. And it produces painful circular thinking round and round and round and round. And I never measure up. I never quite achieve. I don't ever quite get there, okay? Well, that's introspection. Let's get a little happier and look at solitude. Here's what solitude does. The goal with solitude is time with God, just simply it's experiencing Him. The Bible says that we are to taste and see that the Lord is good. And tasting and seeing are experiences. God wants us to experience Him, not just to uh, have a uh, cerebral knowledge of Him, memorize a bunch of things. He wants us to experience Him, hands-on, experiential. And so the, the uh, goal of, of solitude is time with God experiencing Him and time for Him just to speak and to act. Psalm 25, 14 says, The secret things of God are for those who fear Him. With them, He shares the secret of His covenant. So you want to get inside the mind of God, inside the heart of God, and see what He thinks, what He feels about a, a certain topic or a certain situation or something in your life? You get into God's Word. That's part of solitude because He'll tell you. And then you ask Him and just listen. Just sit and listen. The secret things of God are for those who fear Him, those who will just sit in solitude. With them, with those people, he shares the secret of his covenant. One of the results of solitude is an identity based on Jesus. Not based on what's happening out here. Not based upon whether you approve or disapprove. Now, if I've done something wrong and you disapprove, then I, I should correct that. But just in general, you know what I'm saying. An identity based in Jesus, not in success or failure. And the other result is we experience healing, which allows us to live in the present. So I live in the present, it's he and I, it's me and Jesus. And you're involved too, because it's a, it's a community thing, but I get my directions from Jesus. I'm not controlled by my past, replaying that. Our brain has the ability to replay and pre-play, so I'm not replaying the past and wishing that could be different, or that I had done something different, and it's causing pain. I'm not pre-playing the future just based upon what I think, where it never comes out really well, or it's wishful thinking. But I just get to live in the present and just enjoy His presence here and now. And so that's the difference between solitude and introspection. As I said, um, um, solitude is not introspection, specifically not, okay? Let me come back to the psalm because David is saying that, that uh, he does not practice introspection. He does not do those things, okay? So notice what he does say, though. He does say, go to that next slide for us. He does say, Lord, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. I don't, you know, involve myself, myself in matters that are too great for me. That's what he does say. But I put these scriptures on the other side here, on the right side, and here's why. Because see what subtly what David does? He aligns himself he says, Lord, I align myself with the things that you value. I know that you value, um, uh, you don't value pride. You value uh, humility. That you have no interest in, a haughty, in haughty eyes or a lying tongue or an arrogance and on and on and on. And David is saying, Lord, the things that you value, these are the things that I value too. I value these things. And it's not 
It's not like this. It's not like, Lord, I come to you with a, a great list. Look how cool I am, you know. My heart's not proud and whatever. His heart would be proud if he came like that. It's like this. Lord, I come to you and I surrender these things to you because I realize that the only way that my heart is not proud is because of your presence in my life. Because if it were up to me, I'd be prideful and I'd be arrogant and I'd think I was really something. And David's saying, I come to you and I surrender to you the fact that my eyes are not haughty because if it were up to me, I would have prideful eyes. I'd have haughty eyes. I'd really think I was cool because I'm the king of Israel. And so David aligns himself with the things that God values, all right? Here's one more dynamic about this, though. When you practice this, if you choose to practice this, and please do, align yourself with God's Word, check with some people. Check with some mature believers who know you and are willing to speak that into your life because if, you, if it's just what you say of you, you could get a little off course. But if it's what other people say of you, it's going to be more on course. Here's an example from David's life. David didn't say, I'm a man after God's own heart. God said that of him. God said, he's a man after my heart. David didn't write this song that goes like this. Um, Saul has killed his thousands, but I have killed my tens of thousands. He didn't say that. The people said that of David. Saul has killed his thousands, but our king, David, he's killed tens of thousands. And so, Ask around the people you know, people you trust, people who are mature in the Lord. And that's what you align yourself with out of God's Word, okay? And so the first steps in solitude and spiritual maturity are this. You don't confuse solitude with introspection, and then you assess yourself against God's Word. Here's the second truth. Uh, it comes from verse 2. Uh, verse 2 says, yeah, I have calmed and quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I'm content. Now, I've read that verse, I couldn't tell you how many times I've read that verse over the time that I've known the Lord. Uh, I don't know, a lot. Um, and I've always kind of blown by it because you kind of, you know, zip by it because you get the picture. Oh, cool, yeah, I, I get that. That's a good word picture, Lord. That is a baby um, um, nursing with his mother. I get it. That's good. But that's not what David says. You probably knew that. I mean, I knew it. I just never stopped to think about it. David specifically shows us that um, solitude is a weaned child with its mother. Now, a lot of versions have this verse I put down at the bottom. They use this phrase like, a weaned child is my soul within me. And I kind of like that because it gets to the effects of solitude where your mind and your will and your emotions are becoming more in alignment with him. They're more content because of him. Okay. When I read that verse, as I said, it's easy to, to see a, a child uh, at its mother's breast, uh, but of course that's not it. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said about that verse. I like this. Charles Spurgeon says, this verse speaks of a young child, but it contains the experience of a man in Christ. This verse speaks of a young child, but it contains the experience of a man in Christ. And... Um, since Charles Spurgeon references men in particular, uh, I will tack on to that, that if you want to be a man of God, it involves solitude. It involves being alone with him. And I don't mean for weeks and months and so, you know, I'm not talking about that necessarily. And I'll show you that here in just a couple minutes. But if you want to be a godly man, if you want to be a leader, if you want the Lord to work through you to affect other people's lives, if you want your life to be transformed, 
it starts right here. It's going to have to in, involve solitude. There's just no, sh- no shortcuts. Let me come back to this verse because here's the reality of this verse. A child who's maturing starts to learn the difference between wanting mom's milk, I just come to mom because I want milk, and I just come to mom, period. I don't have a wish list. I don't have a checklist. I just like being with mom. There's a difference between those two things. In other words, this is a child beginning to love the mother and not just what the mother can provide. And this is a maturing believer. I come to Jesus not because he's Santa Claus and I've got a list. I just come to Jesus because he's Jesus and I just just need to be. I need to hear from you, Lord, or I don't have any great thing I need to hear from you on. I just need to be with you. just need to stay connected on purpose. That's maturity. Here's a verse that I read a couple weeks ago in my Bible reading. Again, I've probably read it a lot over the years, never even registered. It's deep, deep in Isaiah, so you know, you can just kind of buzz by it. This is Isaiah 33, 2. Be our strength every morning and our salvation in time of distress. Be our strength every morning when there's no outstanding circumstances, there's no crazy circumstances in front of me, no big situation to deal with, uh, no tragedy, uh, really don't have a lot of need, I'm fairly well supplied, thank you, Lord. But even then, I need you to be my strength, just day in and day out. And the second half of that verse says, be my salvation in time of distress. So there are times where I am in distress, and I do have a checklist, and there are some needs. God, I come to you, first of all, every day just to uh, foster our relationship. And there are some days when I come to you and there is a need. Both are valid. But if I only come to him when I have need, then there's an issue, okay? So that's solitude. It's a surrender, uh, surrendered, maturing, dependent believer in Christ. Um, Rather than a child with its mother, Uh, Here's a modern-day version of that. Maybe it's a child learning to ride a bike. A child learning to ride their bike, no training wheels. They need some help. You've got to guide them. There comes a point when they can ride. And so a maturing child learns how to ride, but they don't ride and never return. They ride away, and they do return. That's a maturing believer. I'm maturing in the Lord and some things of God, But I keep coming back. I always come back over and over and over again, okay? Well, there's one last truth, and it's a natural result of of solitude. It's a natural result of maturity, and it's verse 3. That says, Israel, put your hope in the Lord now and forevermore. So, once there's a habit of not obsessing over self, not being overly introspective. Now, there is a place for introspection, so don't toss that completely out, but not being overly introspective. And once I've matured, once you've matured and developed um, intimacy, you can be with God without a wish list all the time. Once you get to that point, a natural result will be to hope in Him. Put your hope in the Lord. Now, that word hope has the connotation, we won't dive deep into that, but it just has the connotation of not hope like crossing my fingers, I really hope this works out, I hope God comes through. The connotation of the word hope uh, is intimacy, is alpine, is face-to-face, breath-to-breath, eye-to-eye. Trust that happens over the course of time. 
trust that builds upon one, upon another, upon another, okay? So David shows us that placing hope in the Lord has a starting point. And you think of great biblical leaders, the great biblical leaders and the great things that they did. That didn't happen in a vacuum. That didn't just happen like that. I think of, uh, think of uh, Moses, think of Joshua, think of Paul. Here's what the Bible says the old, under the Old Covenant. It says that, that Israel would um, wander around the desert, and when it came time to stop, when the Lord told them to pit, camp, pitch uh, their tent, they'd set up the tabernacle. When they set up the tabernacle, the presence of the Lord would descend in the form of a cloud. And it says, Exodus says that, that the people would stand at the entrance to their tent, just almost like frozen in time, and just watch. Because they knew God was, or Moses was going in there to have uh, an intimate uh, conversation with the Lord. To hear from him, to receive instruction about when to go, where to go, how to go, who's going to fight, and how we're going to defeat them. He's receiving instruction from the Lord. That happens in solitude. And Exodus 33, uh, says this. It says, Thus the Lord would speak to Moses face to face, that's Alpanay, intimately, sharing breath. He would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. But um, Joshua, the son of Nun, did not leave the tent. So what's happening with Moses and Joshua? Moses uh, is judging the people, you remember. So he's receiving instruction from the Lord. He's being prepared. Joshua's also being prepared because there's going to come a day when Moses is no longer in the picture and God's going to use Joshua to take them on into the land of promise. And so there's preparation in the presence of the Lord. In solitude is where they're prepared, a solitude where they receive instruction, where they receive wisdom, where they hear what to do, what not to do, when to do it, and what they learn more and more and more and more uh, is what the child learns just sitting with his mother, is that I don't necessarily need anything anymore, I just want to be with you, because there's safety there, there's comfort, uh, there's validation there. I find out that I'm okay because, not because I'm the greatest thing God ever made, because that's not true. I find out I'm okay because I have a relationship with you that you initiated, by the way, okay? If you string together Acts chapter 9 and Galatians 1, what you see in the life of Paul is that uh, there was a starting point. Remember, our, our uh, goal here, what we're looking at is put your hope in the Lord both now, so there's a starting point. The starting point for Paul was not Acts 9, where he got knocked off uh, his donkey and then jumped up and all of a sudden he's the Apostle Paul and he's writing great things and speaking. No, because the other apostles didn't want him around. This guy is this guy's a hack. This guy's a thug. We don't want him around. There's a period of time where Paul was in solitude with the Lord. Galatians 1 says this, I did not receive the gospel from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. You receive revelation in solitude. God begins to download things, maybe all at once, maybe a piece at a time, however he wants to do it, whenever he wants to do it. That's how Paul received uh, the gospel, by revelation of Christ. And I can well imagine, if you read some extra-biblical writers, you see that, that Paul, uh, really their, their consensus is that Paul had to go reread the scripture that he knew by heart 
he had to go reread it. Now, as a believer in Jesus, he had to reevaluate everything he read, reassess everything that he believed. This is the same Paul, Saul, who was out killing Christians. Now I've got to rethink all of that. And that happens in solitude. Okay? So David says that placing hope in the Lord starts now and it continues forevermore. It goes on and on and on. It becomes a lifestyle. It's not something I do quarterly. It's not something I do annually. It's not something I do on the holy days or uh, whatever. Uh, it's something that I do all the time. It's just practice solitude with the Lord. Well, I'll invite the worship team. I'm going to finish up here. That's the message of the psalm about solitude with the Lord. It's to uh, surrender self-reliance and pride, self-rule, self-examination, self-improvement outside of the Lord. Surrender all that. Just surrender it. Okay. Practice contentment in the Lord as a lifestyle like Moses, like Joshua, um, like Jesus, like Peter. Because if you read on, so here's where solitude becomes um, hands-on. So solitude is not some ethereal thing. We're sitting on a cloud, you know, floating around with Jesus. Moses received real instruction for the people. He didn't just enjoy a kumbaya with the Lord when he was in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies in the desert. He received real instruction for the people. Joshua received real instruction. Peter received real instruction. When Jesus received real things from his father when he was in the desert in solitude, uh, interacting, wrestling with Satan. But when you read on through the, the Bible, you see that God's people experienced distress. They experienced hassles with people, and they had people coming against them, and they had illness, and they just experienced all the things that we experience. And even in those circumstances, they practiced solitude with Christ. And here's why. Here's why, because Solitude is not defined by a place or a time, okay? But it's defined by trust. That's what David says. We trust in the Lord now and forevermore. So the question is, um, in whom do you place trust? Or in what do you place trust over the course of time? Where is your trust? Let me come back to the weaned child just to wrap this up. Here's the deal. The weaned child simply enjoys being in his mother's presence. Just totally content, totally satisfied, totally okay, not concerned with what you think of me or they think of me. I'm just, I'm with my mother. I'm fine. I'm good, okay? But contentment has to be learned for you and I. Contentment has to be learned. That takes place over the course of time. That's why uh, I, um, uh, solitude is a lifestyle because we don't learn just like that. We don't acquire things just, you know, bam. It happens over the course of time, okay? And weaning is that learning process. Being weaned off of um, mother is part of the learning process where that child grows and matures. And so here's my final question for you. I really don't have one question for you today. I've asked it about six ways. Here's a final question. What is the breast that you lean on that God wants to wean you out of, wants to wean you away from? What is the breast that you rely on? Is it uh, pride? Is it something, some talent or ability you have? Is it your past? Is it your personality, your ability to win arguments or outsmart people? Maybe it's a physical attribute, your size or your athletic ability. 
Maybe it's something, uh, your job or your identity, whatever it is. What is that breast that the Lord would say this morning, man, I want to get you off of that. I want to get you off of that. So you just enjoy me. And you don't come to me with a list all the time. There are needs, but you don't always come to me with a list. Because here's the bottom line. The uh, weaned child knows that it's no longer about his stomach. The weaned child knows now it's about his heart. His heart. 